Well, like Jude and Jose said, we're starting a new series today in the book of Judges. Uh, Jose might as well have just preached my whole sermon tonight, to be honest. <laughs> it's a good job. He knows this Bible. Uh, I wanted to choose a book that I thought was kind of unpopular to preach from. I wanted to choose a book that I thought that maybe you guys hadn't heard a sermon series on before. Um, but I want to do a quick experiment to see if I guessed correctly. So I want you to raise your hand if you have never heard a sermon on the book of Judges before. Never heard a sermon. Okay. Now, I want you to raise your hand if you have only heard a sermon in the book of Judges on the story of Samson. Samson? Okay, keep it up. What about Gideon? Gideon? Okay. Now, what about Ehud? Yeah, Ehud? Ehud and Eglon? Okay. Well, that's good. More of you have heard a sermon in the book of Judges than I had thought. Um, but that's good. That's a good thing. You're familiar with the book, and that's a good thing. Um, it's exciting to me to start this book because it's one of my favorites in the Bible. Uh, I love I love the book of Judges, right? And, and I'm convinced that by the end of the study, you're going to say that you love this book too. Um, primarily, of course, because it's God's word, and you should love God's word. But also because I think this this book, the stories are they're fascinating. They're they're different. If you've read through the book, you know that it's just a different book. There's things that happen in the book of Judges that are, that are just kind of crazy. You just read through and you're just thinking like, what is, what is going on? Like, what is even happening? There's, there's anything in here. It's got action. It's got drama, heroes, villains. It has actually some crazy plot twists even. It's got romance. It's got everything. So look, first of all, I just want to say, like, if, if you're someone who thinks or you're convinced that the Bible is boring, it's not boring, right? In this book, the book of Judges, will prove, will convince you that the Bible is not boring. We're going to read some just crazy things. It is not boring. And some people use that as an excuse to justify their lazy habits of reading the Bible. You've heard people say that before. Maybe you've been the person to say that before. Oh, I just, it's just so hard to read because it just, there's, it's just boring. There's boring parts to it. I mean, that's a terrible excuse. Any, any excuse is bad, especially if you profess to be a Christian, you should be reading the Bible. But, but the Bible is boring is a very bad excuse because it's false. It's just not true. There, of course, there are slower parts of the Bible. You know, when you're in Exodus and you're reading chapter after chapter about the curtains and the temple, and you're thinking, why? Why do I have to know this? What is this? And then the, just the construction of the temple and the Ark of the Covenant, just verse after verse after verse of this length and this many cubits and this material with this material and this material. I, I get it. Like There are some parts of the Bible that are slower. But even those verses, when, when you actually engage with God's Word and you, and you read it and you grab a commentary and you learn about why it's there, it's not boring. So anyways... 2 Timothy 3.16, it's a very familiar verse. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for correction, for reproof, for godliness, 
as you come to the Bible, no matter what verse you're reading, no matter what chapter you're reading, no matter where you are in the DBR, daily Bible reading, you should come to every verse with, okay, God, what do you, what do you have for me in here right now that is profitable? Help me to learn from this. Even if you're just reading about the curtains in the temple, this is God's word. Even if you're just reading name after name after name and genealogy and all of these things, I just say, God, this is your word to me. What do you have for me? And I want you guys to come to this book whenever we gather here with, with this attitude. If you've never read the book of Judges, if you're, not, if you're not familiar with it, that's okay. I'm actually excited for those of you that don't know much about it because I think there's going to be some things that you read and you might actually go, that's in the Bible, that's there. I want you to, want you to come ready to hear from God's word. And, and I, want you, I want you to commit to being here. Right? I, don't, I don't want you to miss out. Okay, um, You're not going to regret it. So first of all, let's just talk about the background of the book of Judges a little bit. The, the structure. Okay, this is, uh, this is just some background information. The structure of this book is really interesting. And I love talking about the structure and the background because this is when you get to know a little bit about who wrote it. Right? The, the, the personality, the writing style of the human authors of the Bible. I think this is a really interesting part of the books of the Bible that we have. The structure of the book of Judges is interesting because there are actually two introductions and there are two conclusions. So what we're going to talk about today is the first introduction to the book of Judges. And in between these two introductions and two conclusions are stories of 12 judges in between. Six major judges and six minor judges. I want you to go ahead and open your Bibles to Judges chapter 1. And uh, every week that we're here, we are going to read a pretty big chunk of Scripture. So the first introduction goes from Judges chapter 1, verse 1, to Judges chapter 2, verse 5. We're going to read these. We're going to split it up a little bit. We're going to read those together today. Judges is the second book in a collection of books known as the Former Prophets, also known as the Historical Books. And these historical books consist of Joshua, Judges, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings. And these books contain the period of Israel crossing through the Jordan River. You know that story? God splits the river. They cross through it. They move into the land of Canaan, the promised land. And then they're kicked out. They're exiled from the land. And primarily these books, they recount the faithfulness of God. They recount the faithfulness of God to fulfill all of His covenant promises made to Israel through Moses. Joshua, the book before Judges, Joshua 21-45 says, Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. God is faithful. He keeps His covenant promises. The book of Judges highlights that. Now, like I said, this book, it immediately follows, follows Joshua. And uh, if, if you're curious, the events, they span from 1398 B.C. to 1043 B.C. That's just approximate. And no author is named. There's no author named in, in the Bible itself. But tradition says that Samuel is actually the author. And, uh, you know, scholars agree that's a pretty good guess. So we can say that Samuel is the author of this book. And Judges needs to be understood 
as the tragic sequel to Joshua. Did I say that backwards? Judges needs to be understood as the tragic sequel to Joshua. In Joshua, Israel is obedient to God. Israel is, is conquering. They're moving into the promised land. They're faithful to God. Everything is great in the book of Joshua. Joshua is leading the people. And then in the beginning of Judges, Joshua dies. And the people are disobedient. They commit idolatry. They experience military defeats. It's tragic. The end of this book is tragic. Here's the summary of Judges. Here's just the summary statement of the whole book. It shows you how tragic it is. There was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. The phrase is repeated multiple times in the book. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. After years and years of faithfulness to God, the people turned their backs on him. And they did what was right in their own eyes. They rejected God as their king which led to rampant idolatry. So Judges, it's a slow fade of the people into idolatry, moral corruption, apostasy. Israel was set apart as this holy nation. And in the book of Judges, we see them falling away. And at the end of the book, I'm going to go ahead and spoil it for you. By the end of the book, they look just like the pagan nations that God told them to expel, to kick out of the land. The judges themselves that we're going to read about, starting in chapter 3, the judges themselves are leaders that God gave to his people to rescue them from enemies. And, and judge could be better understood, or it's helpful to understand it as deliverer or, or savior. So God raises up judges. He raises up deliverers and saviors to save, to rescue God's people. And throughout the book, I think this is really interesting, throughout the book of Judges, not one single judge is actually referred to as judge. And here's what I mean. It says that something like, he judged Israel, or they judged Israel, like, like a verb. And what this does is it highlights the fact that God, that, that Yahweh, is the one true judge of his people. So, so here's the thing. God is still the main character of the story. God's faithfulness to an unfaithful people, that is the moral of the story. That is what the author wants you to see. Through everything that happens, through the unfaithfulness of God's people, God remains faithful to them. Within the book, there's the cycle of events. Maybe you've heard this before. It's a cycle. Israel... They'll turn their back on God. They depart from Him. And then God disciplines Israel by handing them over. The Bible says that God hands them over. It says literally that God sells them over to their enemies. His discipline on them for their idolatry is to hand them over and He allows them to be defeated by their enemies. And then when they're defeated, Israel, they beg God for help. And what does God do? God raises up a judge who rescues them. And this happens time and time again. I want you to think about what I told you the summary statement of the book of Judges is. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That's the problem of this whole book. That's the problem the Israelites have. That they just want to do what they think is right. What they feel is right. 
They're moving from this obedient time into a time where they just disobey God and they're unfaithful. And it's really easy whenever you read this book to think very negatively about the Israelites. It's very easy just to, to look down on them and to say they're idiots, <laughs> they're, they, which they were. <laughs> they're idiots, they're, they're dumb, like they're out of their mind, like what are they thinking? But as you are reading it, don't be so quick to judge them. Because the more you read it and the more you think about your own life, the more it actually begins to look like you're looking into the mirror. Because the truth is, we're just like the Israelites. But praise God, He is faithful. And He will always be faithful to us. Every single day, God's people, Christians today, we have a decision to make. Every single day, the decision we have to make is that we have to choose to follow God, to obey Him, to choose His way over our way. Because just like the Israelites, we can wake up every day and we can do what was right in our eyes. If you profess faith in Christ today, then you should know I'm not just saying no, as in know this as a fact. You need to understand that God takes your obedience very, very seriously. And he also takes your disobedience very seriously. There are consequences for the unfaithfulness of the Israelites. And there are consequences for your disobedience to God as well. So as this first chapter, this first introduction of the book, as it is setting the stage for the rest of the book, I want you to see, first of all, how, how damaging disobedience is. But I also want you to see how zealous God is for his people to obey him, for his people to please him, for his people to glorify him. As a Christian, as someone who professes faith in Christ, your highest goal should be to remain faithful to God always. So I want you to look down with me now. We're going to read a large chunk of scripture. Starting in Judges chapter 1, verse 1. We're going to read through verse 26 first. So look down with me and let's read. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord... Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, Come up with me into the territory allotted to me, that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I will likewise go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. And then Judah went up. And the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand, and they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. They found Adonai Bezek at Bezek, and they fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adonai Bezek fled, but they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and big toes. Yeah, that is in the Bible. <laughs> And Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. And the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. 
And afterward, the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who lived in the hill country, in, in the Negeb, and in the lowland. And Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron. And now the name of Hebron was formerly Kiriath Arba. And they defeated Sheshai and Ahiman and Talmai. From there they went against the inhabitants of Debir. The name of Debir was formerly Kiriath Sefer. And Caleb said, you know that character, Caleb from the book of Joshua. He's still around. Caleb said, he who attacks Kiriath Sefer and captures it, I will give him Aksha, my daughter, for a wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it. And he gave him Aksa, his daughter, for a wife. And when she came to him, she urged him to ask her father for a field. And she dismounted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, What do you want? And she said to him, Give me a blessing. Since you have set me in the land of the Negeb, give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. And the descendants of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up with the people of Judah from the city of the Palms into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the Negeb near Arad. And they went and they settled with the people. And Judah went with Simeon, his brother, and they defeated the Canaanites who inhabited Zephath, and they devoted it to destruction. So the name of the city was called Hormah. Judah also captured Gaza with its territory, and Ashkelon with its territory, and Ekron with its territory. And the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. And Hebron was given to Caleb, as Moses had said, and he drove out from it the three sons of Anak. But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. The house of Joseph also went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. And the house of Joseph scouted out Bethel. Now the name of the city was formerly Luz. And the spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, Please show us the way into the city, and we will deal kindly with you. And he showed them the way into the city, and they struck the city with the edge of the sword, but they let the man and all his family go. And the man went to the land of the Hittites and built a city and called its name Luz. That is its name to this day. So Joshua, Joshua, the leader of the Israelites, is dead. In Israel, they turn to God and they say, God, who will lead us now? Who will go for us now? And God answers. And he says, Judah will go. He says, Judah will go and I've, I've given you the land already. Just go and take it. God's hand is leading everything that happens in this book. You see the phrase, I have given, I have handed, I am with you. Over and over and over again. And like I said, you even have, I have given you to your enemies. I have sold you into the hand of your enemies. Don't make a mistake. God is the main character of the story. It's his activity behind it all. So Judah, they go up, they fight, they win. They capture the enemy king. They cut off his thumbs and his big toes. And then this king, he confesses, yeah, God repaid me. So even this pagan king recognizes that what's happening is Yahweh, the God of Israel, is behind this. And then we have this story about Caleb giving his daughter to Othniel because he captures the city. The section that we just read, it's all about the obedience of Judah, the tribe of Judah. 
They were being obedient. That tribe, along with Simeon, that tribe, started out great. Starts out good. What we just read, great. They're going in, they're conquering, they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. God is pleased with it. Here's point number one. I want you to please God through obedience. I want you to please God through obedience. So the life and the leadership of Joshua, it was positive. It was, it's good. Israel was, was, for the most part, obedient through the life of Joshua. They move into the land that God had promised, and, and they trusted God to keep his word with them. They're, they're trusting him they're keep, that he will keep his word. So when Joshua is dead, he's left a good legacy. He set a good example for these tribes to follow. And so Israel, they're saying, okay, who will lead us now? And God says, Judah. Judah will go up. And maybe these people were asking for one leader. They had been used to this one man leading them. But when God says Judah will go up, he's not actually talking about a man named Judah. He's talking about the tribe of Judah. He's saying the tribe will go. So the tribe of Judah says, okay, let's, let's go. And, and they, they turn to Simeon and they say, hey, go up with me. But look, God says, Judah, you lead. But listen, I have already given you the land. The land is yours, so you need to go and take it. He says, just trust me. Keep trusting me. The land belongs to you, so go and take it. And maybe if you've read the book of Joshua, this sounds familiar, because this is exactly what God has already told Joshua and the Israelites to do. Their, their mission is still the same. The leader had died, but they still need to move on. They still need to go and they need to take the promised land. God, his promises still remain. So he says, go and take the land. In Joshua 1, God says, go over this Jordan into the land that I am giving to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you just as I promised Moses. So God had repeated over and over and over again, this land is my promise to you. This is the promised land that I will give you. You just need to trust me. You need to go and take the land. Don't be afraid of the people there because it is yours. Just trust me and go and take it. So when Joshua had died, the tribe of Judah, they were ready to step up. They were ready to go. They were ready to obey. And like it says, they approached the tribe of Simeon. Well, hey, go up with me. They said, go up with, with us and, and help us take the land that is allotted to us. The land that God has promised to us, to our tribe. And if you do that, then we'll go with you and we'll help you get your land. And so God's instructions were clear. The instructions were to completely drive out the Canaanites. To drive them out of the land. There should not be any remaining Canaanites in the land when they're done. And it says, the Lord gave the Canaanites into their hand. You understand? He gave it to them. It's not, oh, the military was great and strong. Nothing like that. The leaders were fearless. God promised it and God gave it to them because they stepped in obedience and trust. Some people like to say, though, that this was showing a lack of faith of Judah to ask for help. Uh, I don't think that is true because God gave them the land. And we're going to see here soon where people, they start to lack faith and then they don't succeed. 
So what's going on here is Judah is leading by example, and they're trying to stay united as the tribes of Israel, like God had desired for all of them to stay united. So look, it seems like Judah is understanding something that God needed them to understand, that that God had made clear over and over and over again that God fights for Israel, that God is their leader, that God will go before them, that he leads Israel, that he delivers Israel, and they trusted his word enough to step out into obedience and to take the land that God had promised. And their obedience was pleasing to God. I want you to notice the description of the events, though, that take place in this battle, right? They defeated 10,000. They captured Adonai Bezek. Most likely, that's not his name. Adonai means king or, or lord, so most likely what they're saying is Lord Bezek, like king of the land of Bezek. So they capture him. They cut off his thumbs and his big toes, and what that did is it humiliated him. It left him useless. He can't fight anymore. He can't lead his people anymore. He can't walk in balance anymore. He can't do any of that. So it was complete humiliation. And as he confessed himself, he had done this to close to 70 other kings. He had kings like this that in his wickedness he had taken in and he had cut off their thumbs and their big toes and he put them under his table and he said, you can eat the crumbs that fall from my plate. You see how wicked these pagans were already. And it says, God repaid me. Like I said, even the pagan understands that it's God's activity. Even the pagans understood that the God of Israel was powerful. So that happens, and they capture Jerusalem, they capture the hill country, they capture Hebron, and and they have victory after victory after victory. But it's at this point in the book where a lot of people raise what's called the moral problem. They'll say, whoa, 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 wait, red flag. Why is God commanding all of his people to go into a land that people were already in and kill them and kick them out. Doesn't that make God bad? There are a bunch of innocent people in this land. Why is God telling them to do that? Maybe you've heard people say this. You're God. You're God of the Bible. He, he believes in genocide. He believes in this. He believes in that. It's not what's happening here. Because we have to understand one very crucial thing about the Canaanites, about these pagans is that they are not innocent. These Canaanites, these pagans, were wicked. They were not innocent. Moses even made this clear in the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, right? he, he says in chapter 9, verse 4, starting there, he's talking to Israel, and he's saying, Do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, the pagans, the Canaanites, do not say it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess the land, whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. He says over and over again, Israel, listen, it's not because you are so righteous that I'm doing this, it's because they are so wicked. These people are not innocent. That's why God is driving them out before you. And God says, no, therefore, the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. In Deuteronomy 18, he says, when you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. Here's one hint as to why God says, get rid of them, because their practices are abominable. They are 
terrible. They are wicked and God hates it. So he says, when you move in there and you get them out, get them out. They are wicked. And if you stick around with them, they will drag you down with them. He says, there shall not be found among you anyone. This is what, this is what the Canaanites were doing. Okay, This is what made them so wicked. God says, there shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering. Anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. And then he says to Israel, you shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For these nations which you are about to dispossess, listen to fortune tellers and diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do this. Has not allowed you to participate in the wicked things that the pagans of the Canaanites were participating in. So these conquests should not be seen as the slaughter of innocent people. That's not... What's going on here? It should be seen as God carrying out his justice on the wicked Canaanites. So Israel is moving in. They're trusting God to give them their land. They're obeying his commands. They are the instrument of God's judgment here. And then we come to this weird little episode about Caleb and his daughter, And Othniel, the judge, spoiler, he's the first judge. (laughs) So like I said, this section we're in, it's the first intro. So what the author is doing here is introducing some people and some things that are going to pop up later on in the book. So, So first of all, what this does is it's connecting Caleb to Joshua. He brings up Caleb, and that should bring to our minds, oh yeah, Caleb, the one who went into the land with Joshua, the one who's been faithful to God, the one who's been a good leader of Israel with Joshua, that's the Caleb that we're talking about. And as someone who lived through what Joshua described, Caleb is zealous, he's passionate to carry out what God has said to do. All right, so he's, he's excited, he's eager to obey and to move in and to take the land that was promised. Caleb's an old man now. So he says, hey, somebody, somebody lead my people. Someone lead this tribe and go take the land. And if you do that, I'll give you my daughter. I know to us that sounds crazy, but that was custom then. And so then it sets the stage for the first judge, Othniel, to enter the story later. So later in chapter 3, whenever we start, we start reading about Othniel, we're going to go, oh, I know that guy. I remember him from the intro. And then it talks about the Kenites, the Kenites, the the descendants of Moses' father-in-law. The Kenites, they come in in chapter 4 and 5, with the judge there, introducing what's going on there. But here's what I want you to see. Here's what I want you to see. I want you to see the obedience of Caleb and Othniel. So you have the obedience of Judah, you have the obedience of Caleb, the obedience of Othniel. They trusted God, they obeyed his commands, and God was pleased with them. And then as this chapter continues more and more, it's more victories about Judah and Simeon, more military victories, more conquests. But then something very significant happens 
And it's this blink and you miss it type of thing. But it's extremely significant because it sets the stage for what is going to happen in the rest of the book. It says, but Judah could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. And this signifies the beginning of the downfall of Israel. I want you to think about this for a second. Why wouldn't they be able to drive out people with iron chariots? I mean, was God not strong enough to defeat the iron chariots? Of course not. Of course God is strong enough to defeat anything or anyone that comes in his way. This is similar to what happened back in Numbers chapter 13. Numbers chapter 13 and 14. The spies, Joshua, Caleb, and ten others, they go into the promised land. What do they say? They come back and here's what they say after they see the land. It says, the people who dwell in the land are strong. This is what the spies say. The people who dwell in the land are strong. And the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. And then they said, why is God doing this? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? So these ten spies, they see the sons of Anak. That's the Nephilim, the giants. The, verse 10 I'm sorry, in chapter 13, it says that it made the ten spies feel like grasshoppers. These giants, they come back and they say, they're so big, we feel like grasshoppers. We, we can't go. We can't go in because they're going to kill us. And they say, God, why did you do this? It would have been better for you to leave us in Egypt. They're afraid. They're scared. They saw something that intimidated them, that scared them, and they immediately forgot about God's faithfulness. They just forgot because they could only see what was right in front of them. They're giants. They're strong. They're going to kill us. Why did you do this, God? Let's go back to Egypt. And they're forgetting, what did God do? What did God? He split the sea so they could move through it. He rescued them. He brought them out. He, he sustained them through all these years in the wilderness. Like he was so good and faithful, yet, oh no, the giants. We, we can't go, God. We're not going to go. We can't do it. Seems like something like that is happening again in Judges 1. Oh no. They have, they have chariots of iron. Their technology is past ours. How, how can we do this? How, how can we beat them? God, of course, is able to defeat the chariots of iron, but Judah began to lack faith. They began to lack faith and trust in God. They should have continued on. They should have fought against these chariots and trusted that God was going to give them the land. Why? Because God already said it was theirs. It doesn't matter what technology, it doesn't matter how big the people were. It doesn't matter. Because God had said, this land belongs to you. So go and take it. So that's what they should have done. And I think this is confirmed by what it says about Caleb next. Caleb is a man that trusted God always. Who obeyed God always. He is passionate 
to carry out the will of God. His faith and his trust in God did not waver. So he went forward and he was victorious in these battles. I want you to notice this, right? The battle that's mentioned in verse 20, it says it's Caleb versus who? The sons of Anak. The same people, the giants that, that Caleb and Joshua and the spies, they went into the land and the ten spies said, no, the giants are there. Even way back then, Caleb and Joshua were saying, I don't care if they're giant. God gave us the land. Like, let's go. Let's go. But Israel didn't obey. These ten spies, they were scared. So fast forward all these years later. Here Caleb is. He's an old man. And he's going in to to capture this land. And he's never forgotten about what happened back then. Because he looks here and he sees the descendants of the same people. And what does he do? God's given us that land. I I don't care if they're the giants. I said that back then. And I mean it now. It doesn't matter to me because what matters to me is what God has said. I'm going to trust God. We're going to obey God. And of course, as he stepped into that battle with complete trust in God, what happened? God gave him the victory. God desires the obedience of his people. God desires for his people to be obedient. He commands for his people to obey him. He declared this to Israel in the Old Testament, Exodus 19.5. If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all people. Deuteronomy 11, verse 1. Love the Lord your God and keep his charge, his statutes, his rules, and his commandments always. So he's telling Israel, obey me, keep my commandments, and you will be my treasured people. I will be pleased when you obey me. And it doesn't change in the New Testament. John 14, 15, Jesus says, if you love me, what will you do? You will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. In 2 John uh, 1 verse 6 says, and this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. So if you are a Christian, if you profess the name of Christ, you should desire to obey God's commands. You should have this this inner desire To obey God. You should really want to do that. It's not going to be perfect of course. But but think about it. What do you really want? When you're faced with temptation. And you're in the midst of the struggle. And you're going. You just feel it. What do you really want to do? In that moment. You know the answer. And if you're a Christian. If you profess faith. The answer should be. I want to obey. You feel the struggle. You feel it. But I want to obey. Do you desire to obey God? Do you desire to be obedient to God with your life? You should think about this. How are you living? What choices are you making? What words are you choosing to speak? What are you putting into your mind? What are you, how are you living? Are you obeying God? Do you have a desire to obey God? Or do you not? Are you not? Obeying God. Now look, I know this is a broad point. We did that on purpose because it's highly applicable. 
You understand? Like, if you profess to be a Christian, you need to be obedient to God. And if you're one of these people who says, I'm a Christian, but when you think about what your life looks like and it does not look godly, Jesus says himself, if you love me, what will you do? You will keep my commands. So as you're thinking about your life, don't just like breeze by this. Don't just be like, oh yeah, I need to start. Like, if you're not obeying, you're in danger. You understand? The Bible says that if you're a Christian, you will bear the fruit of a Christian. You will be obedient. Will you be perfect? No. But if you are a Christian, you will be obedient. That will be your habit is to obey, not to sin and sin and sin and sin. So listen, if you're in a pattern of sin, if you're conforming to the world, if you're living in this pattern of sin and you know it, and you're still saying, yeah, I'm a Christian, I'm, I believe in Jesus, I'm good, you are in danger. That is not a good place to be. You should feel unsafe. to be obedient to God's commands. So our, here, here's some questions to just test your heart. Just, just, to, just to think about it. Ask yourself this. What are you seeking first? Are you seeking God first? Or are you seeking other things first? Are you seeking your, your friends, your your relationships, your, your job? Are you seeking money? Are you seeking your education? What are you putting first? What are you prioritizing? Are you pursuing holiness? Are you concerned at all about being more like Jesus throughout your days? When you sin, are you repenting of your sin? Or are you just saying, oh, oops, Are you pure? I mean, if, if you're dating someone, are, are you pure in that relationship? Are you honoring your parents? Are you forgiving others? Are you judging others? Are you treating other people the way that you would want to be treated? I mean, answer these questions honestly. Check your heart. You need to please God through your obedience. Verse 21, it brings about the massive failures of the northern tribes of Israel, starting with Benjamin. Benjamin did not drive out the inhabitants of the land, did not drive out the Jebusites, and this sets the stage for the rest of the failures. Look down in verse 27, and we'll quickly read through the end of chapter 1. It says, Manasseh, what did they do? did not drive out the inhabitants of the land. Verse 28, when Israel grew strong, what did they do? They put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. Verse 29, Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants, but became subject to forced labor. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants in verse 33. So they lived among the Canaanites 
the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and Beth Anash became subject to what? Forced labor. The Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down to the plain. The Amorites persisted in dwelling in the Mount of Heres in Aijalon uh, and in Shalbim, but in the hand of the house of Joseph rested heavily on them, and they became what? Subject to forced labor. And the border of the Amorites ran from the ascent of Akrabim from Selah and upward. Tribe after tribe after tribe did not obey. They did not obey what God had commanded them to do. They decided, here's what we're going to do. We have a better idea, God. We're going to make them into slaves. They did not completely obey God. To them, maybe, they were like, oh, yeah, this is a better idea. You see, that's still an obedience. To them, they're thinking, oh, yeah, we'll, we'll, we're just gonna, they're going to be our slaves. They're going to serve us. We're still going to be in control here, but we're not going to kick them out. We're not going to drive them out. Like, they only did half of what God asked them to do. God commanded them, drive them out, and they did not drive them out. They were dwelling in the land. They were still there, tolerating them, tolerating this wicked people. Here's point number two. Never tolerate sin. Never tolerate sin. God commanded them to drive them out completely. Why did he command them to do that? There's some practical reasons why. So that they could have control of the main highways of Israel. So that they could have control of the military fortresses. And they could prevent some kind of pagan rebellion. Those are like practical ways. But, but the more important reasons, they're, they're the spiritual reasons. Here's why God commanded them to drive them out. Because he told Israel. He warned them. He said, if they stay here, they will be a spiritual cancer to you. They will redirect your focus. They will drag you into idolatry. If they stay, if you marry their daughters, it will be a cancer to you. They will pull you away from me. And eventually God of Israel would become just another God. Just like these pagans. I want you to imagine a surgeon is operating on someone who has cancer. Someone that, someone's dear to you. Someone that you love. You're in the waiting room. They have the surgery to remove this tumor, this cancerous tumor. That could kill them. They come out of surgery. The doctors come out and they say, hey, you know, what I did was, uh, it was, it was partly successful, but I left a little bit of that tumor because even that tumor, it has a right to live. I, did, I didn't feel right about taking it out. What would you say? You'd be dumbfounded. Like, it can, it, it can kill them. It, it, it can kill this person that I love. Take it out. Like, put them back in, go back in there and get it out. God warned these people. He warned his people. They will be a spiritual cancer to you. And they didn't kick them out. They didn't obey. They tolerated the wickedness. There could have been several reasons for this. Maybe they, maybe they thought, hey, this will be easier, actually, to put them to forced labor. This will be a little bit easier than putting all the effort into getting them out. Maybe they remembered their days as slaves, and they were like, oh, it's time for payback, even though they weren't the people that were enslaving them. Maybe they just thought it would be nice to have some slaves. I, I don't know. But the point is, they did not obey God. They made excuses, they, they justified it somehow, and they tolerated the sin. They tolerated this, these wicked people. 
Or, but still, here, here is the picture of Judges chapter 1. The picture of Judges 1 is that Israel controls the promised land. Judah has kicked out a lot of them, and those that didn't get kicked out are their slaves. So Israel's probably, this is great, we're in control. We're in a good situation. We have the land, we have these people, we're successful. They had the appearance of success, but guess what? They were failures before God because they were disobedient. They were not successful. I want you to see that it is possible for you to appear successful on the outside, yet in the eyes of God, be a failure. When you compromise on obedience to God, when you begin to tolerate secret sin on the inside that people don't know about, you you can look successful. You, You can look obedient. You can look holy and godly on the outside. But guess what? On the inside is that sin that you're tolerating, that you're putting up with, that you're leaving room for in your life is continuing to grow like a cancer and take over. God is not pleased with that. So you, you can be fooling everyone, you can fool all your friends, you can fool your pastors, you can fool your leaders, but you can't fool God. You can become just like the Israelites, appearing to be successful, appearing to be pleasing to God, when in reality you're not pleasing to Him because you are tolerating your sin. You are keeping room, you are allowing it to stay you're making a conscious decision. I know this is bad, but I'm not going to get rid of it because I like it too much. But I can hide it from people. I mean, there are many, many examples of this. I'm going to give one, a, a pretty prominent one. Um, the, the life of the famous apologist named Ravi Zacharias. Have you heard of this man? This means yes. Maybe if you've heard of this guy. Yeah? Uh, Ravi Zacharias, if you don't know the story, for many, many, many years was world-renowned apologist, wrote all these books, was on stage after stage preaching the gospel, debating atheists, just like a hero. So many people that I went to college with would say like, oh, Ravi Zacharias is my hero. He's, he's like, all his books, he's just been so good for me and for my faith in Christ. Anybody, and I mean anybody, who looked at the life of Ravi Zacharias and his ministry would say, wow, massive success. So much success. So God must be so pleased with this. Ravi Zacharias passed away in 2020. And shortly after his death, the world was shocked when several, several women came forward and accused him of sexual misconduct. One of these women accused him of of rape. Um, Long story short, there was an investigation. Thankfully, his ministry, uh, Arzim, they took it very seriously. And uh, they launched an investigation. And after five months, it was found that Ravi Zacharias was guilty on all of these accounts. That for the last 10 plus years of his life, he was traveling the world, sharing the gospel with people. But all along the way, he was abusing Woman after woman after woman after woman. He tolerated his sin. He tolerated it. And it grew and it grew and it grew like a spiritual cancer. 
And everybody, oh, he's so successful, he's so great. God was not pleased with him. You understand? Like, do we understand that? If that was going on, that defined his like, like so many women, so many people that he hurt that he was abusing. Anyways, my point is that he looked and appeared to be so successful, but on the inside, because he had at some point started tolerating the sin. All right, look, we, we can talk another time about, you know, what was he really saved? You know, that's not, that's not the point I'm trying to make, okay? The point I'm making is that he tolerated the sin, appeared successful, but you, you know that God was not pleased with him if that was what was going on behind closed doors. Maybe in Israel's case, it was one person that suggested it. Hey, let's enslave them instead. And they said, great idea. You know, we don't know what happened. But they tolerated these wicked people. They allowed them to stick around. And it led Israel down this path of wickedness, of idolatry, of apostasy. Because they tolerated what God hated. They put up with it. So I've got another question for you to ask yourself. What sin are you tolerating? Is there a sin in your life that you are just tolerating? That you are just like, yep, you know it. You know every day. You know it, that you're, you're doing, you're, you're choosing to participate in this. You know that it is dishonoring to God. What sin are you tolerating? What area of your life are you refusing to be obedient in? Because if you are not careful, you can end up just like Israel here. You understand? Appear successful, but on the inside, you are not successful. That is why in Colossians chapter 3, Paul says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. God hates sin. His wrath is burning against sin. He hates it. So how much do you think God hates it when his people are tolerating the things that he hates. And then think about this personally. If you think to yourself, if I am tolerating sin, God hates that. He is not pleased with that. He tells me to put the sin to death. Is that what your relationship with sin is like? Are you putting sin to death? Are you doing whatever it takes to stop sinning? Or are you tolerating it? If you're tolerating sin, if you are living in habitual sin and you know that's what's going on, again, you're in danger. That is not a good place to be. And you should feel unsafe. You need to take your sin seriously. And, and the reality of this is that if you don't take your sin seriously, then the flip side of that is you don't take the sacrifice of Christ seriously. If you are not putting to death your sin, if you don't see how, how wicked sin is, if you don't actually see it and hate it, then you must not actually see and appreciate exactly what Christ did for you. You must not take it very seriously. 
because he took your sin for you. He who knew no sin, he became sin. Why? So that you can become the righteousness of God. He took what God hates, put it on himself. God punished it in his justice. And he rose again so that you can have a relationship with God. Jesus did that for you. And if you're, if you, if you're, yeah, I'm a Christian and you're tolerating these sins. God hates that. It's a dangerous, dangerous place to be. God hates sin and his actions in the next few verses. It shows just how much he hates sin. Judges chapter 2, first five verses in Judges chapter 2. The angel of the Lord steps in. God steps in. Chapter 2, verse 1. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars. That's what God commanded them to do. That's what he said to do. And what did they do? He says, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? This God is saying, you've not obeyed me. Why have you done this? Why have you disobeyed me? Verse 3, so now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. Verse 4, as soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept, and they called that name the, the place uh, of Bokim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. So God reminds them of his faithfulness. He says, this is what I did. This is my faithfulness towards you. This was your end of the deal. I said, I will do this, and this is what I'm requiring of you, and you did not do it, so here's what I'm going to do to you. This is your discipline. I'm not going to drive them out anymore because you failed to obey me. And they're going to be a thorn in your side. And their gods are going to be a snare to you. What they should have done is remain faithful to God. In God's faithfulness and his goodness towards them, they should have remained faithful to God. Here's point number three. Let God's goodness motivate godliness. Let God's goodness motivate godliness. God is good God is faithful, God is trustworthy, and he always will be. Israel should have remained faithful to God. God's faithfulness towards Israel should have motivated them to stay faithful. They should have said, yes, God, you have been so good to us. You've been so faithful to us. You have been with us throughout all of these years. Even in our past wickedness, even through all this, you have remained faithful to us. So, God, we're going to obey. They should have obeyed. But they didn't. And God is a faithful God who is true to his word. He delivered on his promise. Joshua 23 verse 12. God said, For if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you and make marriages with them so that you associate with them and they with you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you. But they shall be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off this good ground that the Lord has given to you. 
God told them exactly what would happen. He told them exactly what would happen. And they still turned their backs on him. They still decided to disobey. So for a second, I want you to think about all the ways that God has shown his goodness to you. All the ways that God has shown his faithfulness to you, has has shown his kindness to you. I want you to think about it right now. Think about all the ways God has shown his goodness to you. You should be thinking of so many things right now. Raise your hand if you woke up this morning. Yep. Are you breathing? Yep. Did you have food today? Yeah, we did. Great food. You're wearing clothes. I'm assuming you have a roof over your head. You're going to go home and get into a bed of some sort tonight. Look, stop thinking about the things that you don't have and think about the things that you do have. Think about the ways that God has been good to you, that God has shown his kindness to you, his faithfulness to you. Focus on that. And look, this is true for Christians and non-Christians. I want us to understand this. God is good to all people, whether you're a Christian or not. And here's what the Bible says about this. You've heard this verse before. Romans 2.4 Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? So first of all, tonight, if you are not a Christian, I want you to think about all the ways that God continues to be good to you, even though you're living in direct rebellion against him. Think about his kindness towards you, and you need to understand that God's kindness towards you is meant to lead you to repentance. Say, God, you're so good to me. You continue to do this for me. You provide for me. And I, I don't even trust you, but, but here I know that you sent your son to, to live and to die for me. It should provoke you, should motivate you to repent and put your trust in Jesus. So if you haven't, then you need to repent. Put your trust in Jesus. Understand that the, the good things you have are only because of his kindness to you. And now Christians... I want want to remind you of this. Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 7. And when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. If you are a Christian, that is true of you. And those verses alone should motivate you to godliness. God's faithfulness and kindness to you. You say, God, because of your kindness and your faithfulness to me, because you have saved me, you rescued me, I'm going to be faithful to you, God. I'm going to be obedient to you. I want you to check out what happens at the end of this introduction, the first introduction. The angel of the Lord says this, and, and they start weeping, they're crying, they name the place Bokim, which means weepers. They're so upset. They're like, we're going to even name this place weepers. That's how upset they were. And they sacrificed to God. They did all these things. It seems good, right? I mean, it seems good. It's a good thing when you can weep over your sin. The Bible actually says mourn over your sin. It's a good thing when you can do that. It's a good thing if when you sin, you weep over it. Because you understand that you've done something that God hates, that you've grieved 
God's heart. But you know what the text doesn't say? It doesn't call their repentance genuine. It doesn't say that it's genuine. In fact, the more that we read on about the Israelites, it's pretty obvious that their repentance is is not genuine. When you repent, you need to be sure it's genuine. God is not deceived by the outward appearance of repentance. You can cry and cry and weep. But if it's not genuine, if you're not truly repenting before the Lord, God knows it. Joel 2, 12 and 13, it says, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. First, God says, Return to me with all your heart. And then listen to what comes after this. With fasting, with weeping, with mourning. God is concerned about your heart. When you repent, is it genuine? Verse 13, Joel chapter 2 says, And rend your hearts, not your garments. You know, back then, the whole sackcloth and ashes things, you know, that they would do. He says, no, 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 your heart. I, I want your heart. Don't rip your clothes. Don't make sacrifices. Don't cry. Don't weep. Don't do any of that if your heart is not genuine. If you're not truly coming back, returning to the Lord with all your heart and repenting of your sin for real. He says, all that other stuff, don't. Just leave it. Because God is concerned about your heart. Return to God with all your heart. Maybe there will be weeping and mourning to follow the return to God of your heart. But you have to meet, you have to make sure that your repentance is, is genuine. To answer that question, is my repentance genuine? Think back to the other questions I asked you. How is your heart? Are you tolerating sin? Are you passionate about obedience? first chapter of Judges shows how serious God takes the obedience of his people. So if you need to repent of your sin tonight, then do it right now. Maybe some of you realized, I, I'm, I, if the Bible says that's what a Christian is, I'm, I'm not. You need to be honest with yourself tonight. You, 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 need, to, you need to get down to business right now, tonight. You need to put your trust in Jesus. You need to repent of your sin. If you've got questions, if you're like, I'm not sure, I don't know, that's what your leaders are here for, guys. That's what I'm here. Ask me. Ask your leaders. Like, maybe I said this last week. I, I don't care if you don't get to the questions. Like, go to your leader and say, hey, listen, like, I don't know if I'm right before God. I, I need help. Help me. I've got some questions. Do that if you need to. And if you are a Christian, if you put your trust in Jesus, remember that your highest goal should be to remain faithful to God always. Let's pray. God, I pray that as your people that we would remain faithful to you. I pray that as we go to our small groups here in a few minutes, we would be honest with each other, we'd be honest with our leaders, that we would be honest with ourselves. We think about, is there sin in our lives? 
we tolerating sin? Or are we, are we pleasing you with our lives or are we not? God, please help us to be motivated to be godly because of your goodness and faithfulness towards us. God, please let the rest of this night be pleasing to you. Let the rest of this night go to bring you glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.